Father, we thank you for the goodness that you've given in us through your Son, Jesus. I thank you for the opportunity we have this morning to come together as your church and fellowship and serve one another and encourage one another. I ask, Father God, that you would be with us in a supernatural way and that you would transform us by the power of your word. I ask, Father, that you'd be with the children downstairs in children's church, that they would hear the truth and that they would be transformed. I thank you, Father God, that you have made us your own through the power of the blood of your son, Jesus. Thank you for your word, and I ask that these words that I speak this morning would be of you and not of me. In Christ's name, amen. This morning's psalm is the most quoted psalm in in the New Testament. It's Psalms 110. It's a very important psalm. This is going to be kind of a theological, Bible study kind of morning. This is a psalm of David. And it begins this way. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand and I, until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, last, a few weeks ago, we, we talked about why Lord is printed differently in the Bible, all caps or capital L, small o. And here is a great place that we can apply what we learned. In this verse, the Lord, how it starts, it means Yahweh, God. So that, that's... That's how it starts. And then, to my Lord, and it's spelled differently, and that means Adonai, Master, Messiah. So that's a reference to Jesus. This verse is quoted numerous times in the New Testament. Jesus quotes it in Matthew 22, 43 through 45, to show that the Messiah was greater than David. Peter uses verse 1 to explain the prophecy of the deity and ascension of Jesus. In Acts 2, 34 and 35. Paul uses this verse in 1 Corinthians 15, 25 to explain the sovereign rule of Jesus, the Messiah. In this verse, the position of Jesus sitting at the right hand is, is a statement of Jesus being the Messiah. It's, it's, a, it's a powerful statement. And we need to understand, what, what does that mean? Sit at my right hand. In ancient cultures, a person of high rank would recognize a person having equal honor, dignity, and authority by having them sit at their right side. So if I wanted to, I could have Zach come up here this morning, and as I'm preaching, I could have him sit at my right side. And that would mean that he has the same authority as I do. But I'm not going to do that this morning. Usually because he says, I don't want your authority. (laughs) The position of Jesus sitting at this place is very important to us. Paul writes of this in Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might? That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him 
as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Jesus is seated in a place of power and authority. In Psalms 110, the right hand refers to Jesus, the Messiah. And he has power and authority over everything, including his enemies. He has, a, he has power and authority over every single thing in creation. Jesus being at the right hand of God would be proof to the disciples that Jesus has gone to heaven. John 16, verses 5 through 7. Jesus says, but now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. This then leads us to another reason why we see Jesus and have proof of Jesus being in heaven. And that's the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. This was proof that Jesus was in heaven at the right hand of God. And we know that Jesus is in heaven and remains in heaven at the right hand of God in this position of authority because we're the benefits of him being there, according to Romans 8, 30, 8, 8, 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God in a power, in, in a place of power and, and authority, and he's using that power and authority to intercede for you and I. Now, if we understand this, here's some theology. It's important for us. Jesus has always been God. So in one sense, we have to understand Jesus has always been equal to the Father and the Holy Spirit. He's equal in position, honor, power, and authority. But in agreeing with the Father and the Holy Spirit, Jesus lowered himself from heaven. And took on human nature. He never ceased to be God. But he took on human nature. John 1.14 And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father. Full of grace and truth. He came for one purpose. And that purpose was to die for our sins. He was crucified and buried. Paying the price for our sins. He rose from the dead. Demonstrating that he remained fully God. By having the power to raise from the dead. Jesus then bodily ascended to heaven. Taking his rightful place of authority, power and equality with God. So he began as equal to God. He continued as equal with God. And he returned to the position of equality with God. And with great power and authority. Back in Psalms 110 verse 2, we prophetically see the power and authority of Jesus the Messiah. Again, it begins, the Lord, it's all caps, sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. God is saying, Jesus, go rule. 
Christ's ruling power has been sent from Zion. And Zion refers to Jerusalem, where Christ's power was first seen and preached. In this verse, it, it talks about a scepter. Now, we, we don't understand that very well because we don't, we're in this country. We've never had a monarchy. And that's kind of a, a different way of thinking. So we need to understand what a scepter is. And a scepter, a little thing that a king or a queen would carry with them, a little stick, all encrusted with jewels, was a symbol of power and authority. A symbol of, of the sovereignty. When a king carried that, that was a symbol of his sovereignty over his, his kingdom. The power that is symbolized by the scepter that, that is associated with the Messiah is the gospel. That's the power. Paul writes in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to the Greek. And Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 10.4, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to, divine, to, um, to the Jew first and also to the... I got... Let me back up. <laughs> Hang on. Our warf- For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Some days just don't work the way you want them to. The scepter, the power, is the gospel. Because the gospel has the power to rescue souls from eternal separation from God. And it has the power to transform them into God's people for all of eternity. That's what's in this this passage. It also talks about it going out from Zion. That's Jerusalem to us. And it goes from there to every corner of the world. We know this from Luke's um, gospel, verse 24, uh, chapter 24, verse 46. Jesus said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should not be proclaimed in his name, should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. We know historically it began in Jerusalem, and the gospel continues to be preached everywhere, even in the presence of those who oppose and hate Christ. I've had the opportunity in my life to be in a number of places. Um, One of those was behind the Iron Curtain. I was in East Germany before the Iron Curtain was, was dismantled. And I was ministering to the underground church in East Germany. And the power of the gospel was amazing. People were coming to Christ even though it was illegal to preach the gospel. Even though it was illegal to be a church, people were still coming to Christ because it is the gospel that has that power of the Messiah. We see an idea of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 
Let's go on in Psalms 110. David writes, Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will will be yours. In this verse, your people refers to, to the people saved by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we understand what he's written, then followers of Christ, believers, gladly, voluntarily give themselves to his work. They see Christ as victorious and are willing to serve his kingdom. That's where we should be. And power, in verse 3, it comes from a Hebrew word that also carries the meaning of host or army. And the idea that's connected with all of this is that the people of God willingly, voluntarily come together as the army of Christ. This means that the church, you and I as believers, are the army of Christ. And in this army, there are no mercenaries and there are no no slaves that have been pressed into military service. The army, the church, is composed entirely of volunteers. Sometimes we struggle a little bit with that in the church because typically, depends on the church, 10 to 20% do all of everything. So where's the volunteers? So this should become a part of who we are. We're, we're in an army. We're, we should be volunteering for service as Jesus rules the church. And when the church, that's you and I, yield to the Holy Spirit, there is a free offering of our lives and voluntary service. I saw this on Friday. As you know, we had Al service here and we, we needed to, to fill this room with chairs. And after the men's breakfast on Friday, one of our volunteers helped move these chairs. Russell was amazing. He, he just stepped into that role and he moved a lot of chairs. And I wanted to thank you for doing that. Thank you, Russell. That's being a part of the army of Christ. Jesus rules. Do we serve? In, in the verse back in Psalms 110, the dew of your youth. So, so what's about that? It, it describes the ageless strength of those in the army of God. As we connect with Christ, that's where our strength comes from. We are strong to volunteer. We are strong to serve. We are strong to live our lives for Christ because we're connected to Him. Let's go on in verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I was taught by my dad not to swear. You you know, it, it was always, don't swear. Okay. So why does God swear? He swears 
in this verse, God is swearing because he wants us to understand that what comes next is the most serious and strongest statement he possibly could make. He's making a point. God is swearing or making an oath by his own name, by his own existence, his own perfection. You can't get any better than that. There's nothing higher than that. So when God swears Jesus would be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, he is pledging by his own greatness, his own character, and unchanging power and perfection that the priesthood of Jesus will never end. It is irrevocable. That's huge. Now, connected with this, this swearing is the order of Melchizedek. And the order of Melchizedek is actually very important, and we're, we'll see that. However, before we, we, we delve into why that's important, we got to have a little lesson to help us in our Bible study because it's easy for us to get hung up with Melchizedek. Who is this guy? He's fascinating. You read the story in Genesis and you, you read about him in other places and, and, and Melchizedek, I mean, this is, this is a great character. But we need to learn a biblical Bible study principle. And we need to remember it. And the principle is this. It is tempting to come to a passage and speculate about the possibilities because the possibilities are really very interesting. But this speculation distracts us from what God has clearly revealed. Some things God has hidden. They remain hidden purposely by God. If he wanted us to know all of the intricate details about Melchizedek, he would have shown us those things. Some things are to remain hidden, and it's not good for us to speculate. We need to stay focused on what is clearly revealed and given by God. John Piper puts it this way, and I like what he says. He, he, he puts it this way. People need solid food, not possible food. They need a sure word from God, not a guess from man. They need a biblical, thus saith the Lord. Biblical, thus saith the Lord. Not a, maybe God said. And I like that. We, because it's easy for us to get sidetracked into speculating about this mysterious man when the clear message that God wants us to see is simply that Melchizedek is a type or symbol of Jesus. A type or symbol. Where does that take us? Well, that takes us into what God really wants us to see in this, in this psalm. Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. We know that from Genesis because Abraham gave a tithe to him. And Melchizedek is important as well because he was a priest. And in his priesthood, it was not connected to the Aaronic priesthood in any way. So there's a priesthood that's not the same as the, the, the priesthood of Aaron that you see in Judaism. 
I want to say something about that priesthood of Aaron, the Hebrew priesthood. The, the qualification, qualifications for a priest did not include godliness. That, to me, sometimes that's, that's shocking. But in the Hebrew system, every priest was required to be a descendant from Aaron. You had to be related to him, to Aaron. There were over 100 physical flaws then that could disqualify a man from serving. But there were no spiritual or moral standards that had to be met. The Jewish priests were priests because of their birthright and their physical traits. This is part of the the reason. This is the point of why God uses Melchizedek as a type or symbol of Christ's priesthood. Because Christ's priesthood was very different. And this is what we find in the other places where this, this verse this, this passage is used. It, it, for example, it's used five places in Hebrews. We'll go through these. In chapter 5, in two places, beginning in 5 and, and then again in verse 9, this passage is used to show us the claims of Jesus being the Messiah were not to exalt himself. Hebrews Five, five. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Your priesthood is different. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 9. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Not after the order of Aaron. And it wasn't Jesus that was doing it. Hebrews 6.20. It emphasizes the idea that Jesus serves forever as high priest for his people. Beginning in verse 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. And then in Hebrews chapter 7, beginning in verse 15, we're taught that the priesthood of Jesus is greater than the priesthood of Aaron, because it is eternal and indestructible. Verse 15, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. All of the priests of Aaron, all of the Jewish priests, they all died. Jesus, his priesthood never ends because Jesus is eternal. He never died. Dies. He did die and he rose from the dead. Hebrews 7.20. It shows that Christ's priesthood is greater than Aaron's because it is established on the absolute proclamation of God. Something we saw earlier in, in Psalms 110. Verse 20. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. 
But this one made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Christ and his priesthood is completely different than the priests of the old covenant. In the new covenant, there is only one perfectly moral and eternally powerful priest. Only one priest. Jesus Christ, the Messiah. The old covenant, there were all kinds of priests. Our basic and fundamental problem in this life is how to be reconciled to God. To God. So we're not consumed by his terrible wrath. And the priesthood of Jesus, the one priest, is the only solution to that problem. Old Testament priests made sacrifices after sacrifice. They're just continually making sacrifices to temporarily appease God's wrath. The priesthood of Jesus Christ provides the eternal means of being saved from God's wrath. That's huge. That's why Melchizedek is used. There's a difference in the priesthood of Christ. Let's go on in Psalms 110. Verse 5, The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. Verse 5 restates Jesus, the Messiah, as being in the place of power and authority. And verse 5 begins these last few verses, and we begin to see a battle. They take us to the battlefield, and the battle is the Lord's. And we will see the Messiah shatter kings. That means kingdoms and nations will be destroyed no matter how strong they are in an earthly sense. With his sovereign authority, Jesus will bring righteous judgment. So these verses are looking forward to what Christ will do. And in some ways, he's even doing that now. Verse 6 is a bit gruesome. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. That's, that's kind of gruesome. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. This is prophetic in many ways because we know from Revelation 16 and 19 that the final battle of Armageddon will be violent and horrible. Jesus will judge every nation. Jesus will judge every person. And, and in that judgment, there's only two possibilities. Either a person is crushed and subdued under the foot of Christ. That's one possibility. Or a person believes in Christ and will be exalted and sit with Christ on his throne. Very distinct differences between the two possibilities. And think about, think about that. Sit with Christ on his throne. Okay. 
Revelation 3.21, it says, The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He will drink from... Okay, the way I printed this, so I always go on to verse 7. I have more mistakes this morning than I'm allowed. Jesus is saying, the one who conquers, I, that's Jesus, will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down on my father's throne. So that that takes us back to that whole idea of being at the right hand of the throne of God. As believers, we are going to conquer with Christ. Are we not? We're part of the army. We're part of the church. We're, we're part of that victorious thing that's going on. And Jesus says, as believers, you're going to conquer. You're going to then sit with me on the throne. That's that same position, isn't it? We're going to sit down with Jesus, with my father on his throne. You got to believe in Christ to be there. You got to be one with Jesus. Verse 7, he ends this way He will drink from the brook of the way, and therefore he will lift up his head. As Christ brings things to this place of judgment upon the rebellious nations of the world, he's not all tuckered out and, and, and wearied, he's refreshed. That sounds kind of odd, but he's refreshed. He's drinking from the brook. And the reason why is because he is victorious. He lifts his head. He lifts it in in glory and joy and great delight because of his victory. It's there. He's not going to have to have this battle anymore. And all his sorrows and his suffering of going through this, this whole plan has has come to an end and the end is he's victorious and in that victory as his people were there with him in that victory let's make this practical for us then because your thinking determines how you live your thinking about Jesus must be correct, and, and your thinking about what he's done and what he's going to do needs to be correct to avoid future judgment and to experience God's blessing in this life. You, you got to have the right thoughts about Jesus. What are those thoughts? Pretty simple, really. Jesus is the king over all kings. And he is the sovereign ruler over all of creation. We're taught in this psalm that that, those two facts, these are unchangeable fact. Because they're unchangeable fact, we should gladly and willingly and passionately Submit our lives 
to our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing's more important. Father, thank you that you've given us opportunity to serve in your kingdom, to be one of yours because of the blood of Jesus. I ask, Father God, that you'd forgive us when we walk away or turn our backs on our position in your kingdom, in your army, in your church. Holy Spirit, stir us up to serve and and to volunteer and to be a part of the victorious church of Jesus Christ. I ask, Father God, that you take us from this place and that we we would be willing to proclaim the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we would display our passion and our desire to see a strong church and to see Jesus lifted up to be a part of the work of the kingdom. Thank you, Jesus, for being our king, our sovereign. We submit to you in Christ's name. Amen.